ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in to what is going to be a very special episode of The Scoop. We have Yassine Almandra from ARK Invest. They're a $28 billion New York-based global asset manager. Of course, the firm is best known for its inimitable uh, founder, Kathy Wood. And we have with us today their crypto analyst, Yassine Almandra. He just penned a very interesting white paper that outlines, obviously, some of the benefits of Bitcoin, not just as an investment, but as a as a sort of you know global settlement network that is akin in some ways to gold and is uh, unique in many respects, and we're going to get into those those aspects of Bitcoin as a unique investment opportunity. But I think the top line number that really caught our attention here at the block is that they think by 2025, Bitcoin could reach three trillion dollars in market cap. That would certainly make a lot of our analysts here at the block happy. In any case, Yassine, thanks so much for coming on the show. I guess walk us through a little bit about uh, the sort of thinking behind this paper and and maybe how you came to that top headline number. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me, uh, Frank. Um, it's good to be on. It's good to be talking about Bitcoin potentially going to the moon. Um, you know, maybe l- let me just take a step back and, and provide context as to our, our relationship with crypto and Bitcoin and how you know, this number isn't necessarily something that we just uh, came out of out of thin air. Um, so we were founded in uh, in January of 2014 by our CEO, CIO, Ark Invest, Kathy Wood. And, um, you know, in 2015 was when we actually really started to look at sort of Bitcoin and, and crypto and took our first position in GBTC when Bitcoin was trading around $250. Um, at the time, we also published kind of a, a white paper uh, called Bitcoin Ringing the Bell for a New Asset Class, um, where we really looked at uh, Bitcoin in the context of traditional asset classes and came to the conclusion that based on sort of asset class characteristics, that Bitcoin didn't really fall into a bucket. Um, and we, we ended up coming to the conclusion that it is indeed uh, a distinct asset class sort of worthy of, at the very least, exploring it as an investment. So fast forward, you know, four or five years, and uh, and this two part white paper that that we came out this month is really sort of an extension to to that thinking. Um, you know, a lot of the questions that um, we try to answer tend to be sort of institutional geared, and uh, I think very few sort of uh, answer the question. You know, is Bitcoin ready for institutions? We always get the whole: Are institutions ready for Bitcoin? Are institutions ready for Bitcoin? Uh, but we rarely kind of answer the reverse. Is Bitcoin ready for institutions? And so uh, in addition to sort of sizing that opportunity uh, for institutions, we really tried to look at kind of what the liquidity and, and, and volume profile of Bitcoin are relative to other asset classes and, and whether or not, you know, we're at, we're at a place um, where, you know, Bitcoin can sort of support um, the institutional flow uh, that, that we so uh, desire. With that, um, you know, to your point of, of the opportunity and sizing that opportunity, um, indeed, we think that um, you know over the next five years, Bitcoin presents sort of a multi-trillion-dollar opportunity, um, and that's uh, an order of magnitude greater than sort of the, around the two hundred billion-dollar cap that we see today. Uh, and we've sized that opportunity uh, in four different ways. I think the unique thing that a lot of uh, investors 
don't fully appreciate is sort of how the opportunities themselves are, are positive sum. Uh, and that, you know, you have one use case uh, that sort of bleeds into another use case, whether it's digital gold, whether it's as an economic settlement net network, and all of it is really just additive to sort of Bitcoin's market capitalization. So it's not really zero sum in, in sort of the demand drivers. And so, you know, these are sort of several of the many we, we, we think uh, kind of can, can help Bitcoin uh, appreciate in, in the next decade. It seems like your the argument is rooted in these four major characteristics of Bitcoin as this unique settlement network, as something that cannot be seized as a digital gold and as a, uh, I guess, as a proper form of payment in emerging markets where we've seen uh, money maybe act um, not like money, for, for lack of a better term. I want to focus maybe on something that's been top of mind for us, um, and you get at this in the paper, and I'm going to maybe to a degree put you to task and I'm sure you'll have a great answer for it. But, you know, at least over the course of this pandemic, and, and obviously we're looking at a small window, uh, Bitcoin in many respects, and we joke about this here at the block, on the weekends, you know, it, it's kind of trading like an S&P future to an extent. And, and when we see broader markets fall, Bitcoin falls and even gold falls to an extent. So like when we saw Mr. Trump announced yesterday that stimulus may not come until after the election. Bitcoin, DeFi, Ethereum markets all cratered in line with the broader market. But I guess you're sort of looking at you're looking at 90 day correlation here between Bitcoin and, and nine other assets. Given that backdrop that we've seen, how do you then make the case of Bitcoin being uncorrelated and, and acting as a strategic allocation play? Sure. I, I think that, you know, this question comes up a lot and I think it is really a function of the, the time horizon you decide to sort of analyze Bitcoin as a strategic allocation. So the way that kind of we look at it is, okay, you know, we're not going to sort of look at, let's say the, the day or the month to month correlation. Um, we're going to look at, you know, the last 10 years and what Bitcoin, how Bitcoin has sort of reacted um, in relation to traditional asset classes over those, those 10 years. Um, so, you know, to your point, we, we ended up conducting sort of a 90-day um, a rolling correlation between Bitcoin and sort of nine other assets um, since May of 2010. Um, and for the most part, you'll see that the kind of the correlations for each of the assets uh, tends to center around zero. Um, even the mean correlation sort of to the S&P 500 uh, is, is roughly 0.03. The mean correlation uh, to gold is is you know negative point zero zero four, and then of course you know in the sort of presence of pandemic like shocks like what we've seen, um, you know correlations definitely sort of shoot upwards. But I don't think that that is necessarily um, kind of limited to just Bitcoin. Uh, but we see that sort of across all asset classes, um, and and you know gold uh, and the S and P is a, is a stark example of that. Um, where kind of in, in, in mid-March, we, we saw correlations shoot up to, to near highs uh, with gold and, and the S&P. So, you know, if you look at, um, you know, even at the extremes, uh, and that, that's something that I think if you're looking at it as a strategic allocation or defining sort of Bitcoin as a hedge against kind of, uh, you know, inflation or uh, sort of economic uncertainty, um, what you really want to see is zero to negative correlations at the extremes. And so we also conducted an analysis of kind of looking at the, the last 10 years 
and uh, what the maximum, whether it's positive or negative, one-year rolling correlation is across other asset classes. And um, across the board, uh, you know, Bitcoin uh, presents very, very low correlation coefficient. Um, and this is against the S&P, bonds, gold, oil, emerging market currencies. And of course, uh, Tesla. You have to have and, the Tesla plug. And, and, and you got to incorporate Tesla because then it's, the, it's, it's not really in our paper if there's no, there's no mention of Tesla. <laughs> Well, it's certainly um, this call wouldn't be alone in some of the bold calls of of Kathy Wood, right? Who who made that very bold claim that Tesla would go to four thousand, and and you know, I think a lot of pundits and and folks in the market have been shocked to see how far it's gone. In so many respects, uh, the firm is is not eating crow, whatever the antithesis of eating crow is. That's what's happening. But without getting away from the point. Talk us about some of these these different correlation distributions that we see here. And is that resonating? Like when you talk to investors and you show them this data, how do they react to it? Sure. So I would say a few things. I mean, there's a recent uh, Fidelity uh, survey that comes out that we actually like to reference in, in the context of correlations and in, in investor interest. And we sort of tend to see uh, that today, sort of the primary value proposition for many investors in gaining that exposure is that sort of relative uh, lack of correlation. You know, this is not to say that, you know, this is going to, this is sort of that, that safe haven asset or, or clear uh, kind of uh, hedge against inflation in the, in the short to immediate term. But if, again, you look at kind of the, this correlation distribution, it is sort of normally distributed around uh, zero. I think where people kind of tend to have some sort of misunderstanding of that fundamental value proposition or where they're hesitant to gain exposure is in one, acknowledging that, you know, in, in the case of a corona-like uh, shock, you know, Bitcoin is not going to perform like we hoped it would perform. And two, if I'm looking sort of to maximize my risk-adjusted returns uh, in a portfolio, well, you know, Bitcoin is not going to be very attractive to me just because of how volatile it is. Um, so that that coupling of sort of Bitcoin's volatility combined with, you know, uh, not sort of that, that immediate reflection of being an uncorrelated asset tends to tends to, you know, turn off investors. But again, I think the if you shift that framing and say, you know, the volatility is actually sort of a feature and emergent property of Bitcoin and is and tends to be on the upside and that the correlation over long enough time horizons um, not only is uncorrelated, but presents sort of risk-adjusted, uh, uh, more attractive risk-adjusted returns in a moderate portfolio. You start to see kind of uh, investors open open up to that opportunity. Um, so there's sort of a lot of analysis that that not only we've conducted, but others on on what it would look like if you let's say incorporate one or two percent of your portfolio in Bitcoin uh, and swap out, you know, equities or bonds. And so that that's sort of the, the the framing that I think has has begun to resonate. It's really again about sort of zooming out. I mean, the way that we like to sort of frame Bitcoin as is that you know even if it trades twenty four seven and has sort of unlimited price discovery, it's really more of sort of a venture capital like bet, both in terms of this sort of strategic allocation opportunity, but also the the appreciation potential. Um, so the I would say the more sort of safe haven esque like non-correlation Bitcoin presents, which I think o over time it will, the less actually attractive it is as, a, as an investment with a kind of appreciation potential. 
like you can't have that appreciation potential without that sort of upside volatility. So that's, yeah. What would you say maybe to the, to the folks who would argue that this has all become one trade and maybe 2020 has invalidated this idea that, you know, Bitcoin is this, uh, uncorrelated, um, play. Uh, by one, can you can you like elaborate exactly what you mean by uh, one trade? As in, like all everything is sort of moving in the same direction: S and P, Bitcoin, yeah. gold, Tesla to Ethereum. Correlations are all at all time highs, and and I mean, you even have I think it was Joe Weisenthal tweeted the other day something about like lumber and Tesla moving in the same direction. Everything has sort of been in lockstep, and so. If 2020, uh, or rather a pandemic or a crisis, was supposed to maybe illuminate um, these unique aspects of Bitcoin, why why don't you think it did? That's a good question. Uh, Yeah, I would say that, you know, generally, especially if we sort of look at kind of the institutional investor world, um, you know, they would actually lump something like Bitcoin or blockchain or, or into the same category as like a Tesla. Um, and that's because, you know, the, the concept of just innovation more broadly to them is is not something that even can be sort of deconstructed into different themes um, like what we do. So if you look at sort of a, a traditional kind of institutional investor portfolio, um, you know, something like sort of innovation isn't even going to be sort of a separate slice um, in their overall portfolio. It's going to be bucketed, um, you know, into equities uh, or into maybe, you know, a, a slice of alts. Which brings up sort of the broader point and part of sort of Arc's thesis is that, you know, innovation more broadly deserves kind of an exclusive dedicated slice in a portfolio. Uh, And that, you know, while the market is easily distracted by these short term price movements, um, you lose focus on sort of the long term effects of these um, disruptive technologies. So, well, I think that, yes, in in the short term, you know, you can sit you can look at this as, as sort of one big trade. Uh, again, you know, we like to zoom out and, and say, okay, how is the market now responding to innovation? Um, is there almost a, a, a sort of FOMO feeling of, you know, I want to just allocate or get exposure to anything that sounds sexy, um, in which, you know, the Bitcoins and the Teslas uh, of the world are, are in that conversation, but that, you know, there, there are other sort of companies that, that, that slowly are, 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 are like that, that aren't responding in, in as positive a way. Um, that aren't as tech related. So, you know, a function of, I would say, you know, investors starting to realize that maybe they want sort of a pure tech play. And then, you know, we're almost at that sort of tipping point where we're going to start to perhaps see um, an uncorrelation within the innovation space more broadly, which is something that we really uh, preach. If you're a listener of The Scoop or follow The Block, then you know I am super excited about the future of crypto adoption, especially on the enterprise side. Our sponsor, Blockset, is not only helping to push development at the grassroots level with their multi-chain API, but also at the institutional level. Blockset is built by BRD, the first crypto wallet in the App Store from 2014, and one of the largest in the space today. They've taken the architecture and the knowledge they've gained over the past six years to create Blockset, a robust, reliable, and strategic B2B offering for developers and enterprises. Blockset is enabling banks and other major financial institutions to interface and build with crypto assets at light speed. See just how simple it is by visiting Blockset.com 
and sign up for a free account today. One thing that I found um, striking, this is kind of moving away from the correlation bit, but just, I, I guess it, I guess it kind of makes sense when you think about it, but just the fact that spot Bitcoin trading volumes, top trading volumes of all of the FANG stocks. And so I guess it'd be interesting to sort of par parse out the significance of that and maybe, you know, parse out what is suggesting to you and the folks at ARC that this is, you know, obviously turnover is an indication of a future price increase in some respects. I think, I think that argument could be made, but I'd be curious to know uh, or unpack the significance of this high turnover. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, in, in one part of the research, uh, we really wanted to dive into sort of Bitcoin's maturity um, as an institutional asset. Uh, I think what's really interesting is that, you know, we say that Bitcoin is an asset class or is the birth of a new asset class in terms of its characteristics. But then in terms of its sort of liquidity and volume profile, the answer is, you know, not as obvious. Uh, and so this sort of research uh, or this section we focused on was kind of, you know, what is the best comparison to what traditional investors are familiar with um, from a sort of volume and liquidity profile? Um, mm -hmm. You know, mo most relevant to that is sort of uh, spot volumes. Uh, but in fact, when you sort of look at total Bitcoin trading volume, spot volume actually really only accounts for a small percentage of total trading volume. And this is sort of important, especially when you're speaking to an institutional investor where, you know, you tell them, OK, you know, you're convinced of gaining exposure to Bitcoin. Uh, you're, let's say, a, a hundred billion dollar fund. Um, you know, you want to gain two percent exposure. Like, can you just market by two billion dollars worth of spot Bitcoin? And, and the answer is certainly not. Uh, and so this is actually quite eye opening for many who, um, you know, you know, want that sort of, you know, pension endowment, sovereign wealth fund to start, you know, buying Bitcoin. And we're starting to sort of see um, that perhaps it's it's not as sort of mature uh, from a liquidity and volume standpoint as what many might might hope for. Uh, with that being said, it is sort of what, what we think is closest to sort of a large cap uh, public equity stock. Um, so we did sort of analysis um, looking at Bitcoin's uh, spot volume compared to the fangs and and it's really in line with with fang stocks it's it's slightly lower than amazon and facebook and and higher than netflix and google and what's most striking about this is that you know this is sort of a 10-year asset uh that that is growing in its volume exponentially um so you know we overlaid sort of that analysis with the compound annual rates of kind of bitcoin's trading volume and if it continues at these rates uh, over sort of the next uh, five, 10 years, we will start to see uh, Bitcoin's volume profile much more in line with, you know, uh, U.S. equity spots or global FX. And so, you know, all that to say that we're on this positive trajectory um, right now, you know, if the sovereign wealth fund were to allocate sort of 2% of their portfolio in Bitcoin, uh, they would need to do that, you know, very strategically and, and, and figure out ways to, to do best, best execution. I think, you know, MicroStrategy's decision to kind of buy $500 million of their own balance sheet into Bitcoin and then share their experience on kind of the operational ecosystem that they had to build out um, was also telling um, as to kind of that we're not fully there yet, but that we're getting there. I, I um, 
suffered from a moment of color blindness and mixed up the Bitcoin line with the Amazon line. Um, so it it's not beating all of the fangs no. stocks in no. volume to your point, but in some moments it's been just under. Now I'm looking at this right zoomed into it. Um, it's been just under Amazon for certain points uh, in 2018 and is right in line to your point with Google and Netflix and and Facebook and then Amazon, the the e-commerce behemoth, a bit farther ahead with you know looks like around. Uh, yeah, quite a bit of volume more, maybe about three times Bitcoin. But in any case, the the growth momentum's there. You're talking about right. since early 2013 compounding at an annual rate of 215%, tripling volumes every year. And so to your point, most of the indications there suggest that that sort of growth will continue. You know, one one mistake that's made in many different markets is equating volume with liquidity in terms of looking at you know the spreads and and sort of the liquidity of this market, is this something that's you know at the point of viability for someone uh, looking to make a trade from the institutional investment side? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I I would say what's unique to to Bitcoin as well is that you know there the there's a very fragmented market when it comes to gaining exposure to uh, Bitcoin. Um, you know, whether that's, you know, the futures market, uh, whether you're buying spot through sort of retail exchanges or OTC. And, and so, you know, there is a question of kind of the traditional retail exchanges just not being equipped in general to handle sort of larger sums of money. So the, the issue is that kind of OTC desks um, by, by their very nature are um, more opaque in, in their operations uh, and in their sort of liquidity uh, sources. And so it's it's hard to get um, kind of uh, hard data on what that looks like. But by proxy, um, you know, if you do look at retail exchanges um, and in particular sort of the bid-ask spreads of, of some of the, the, the largest uh, ex- crypto exchanges, that too is, is in line with uh, or in, in with, with sort of traditional U.S. equity bid ask spreads, uh, and in fact, the sort of top uh, six uh, major crypto exchanges uh, actually have uh, uh, significantly tighter spreads than kind of an average bid ask spread in, in U.S. equities. Um, there, there are a few caveats to that analysis, in that you know there's some some differences in, in minimum tick sizes uh, or price movements as well that that can kind of throw off that uh, an apples to apples comparison. Uh, and then, of course, there are different sort of uh, fee structures across exchanges, which kind of changes the incentives for uh, kind of market makers. And so, you know, that's that's kind of one uh, one analysis of uh, of uh, of the liquidity that we looked at. Uh, and then another is just kind of extending that to what kind of slippage uh, might look like associated with just a, a one million dollar order. And uh, while, while the slippage for, for some of the larger exchanges is, is minimal, um, you have to think that a $1 million order is a very, very small order for an institution, um, but perhaps a larger order for, um, for retail. Um, so, you know, this was the closest sort of proxy measurement uh, for analyzing liquidity, but ideally, you know, getting insight into sort of OTCs, uh, which is where the majority of larger institutions conduct their transactions um, would be even more illuminating. It's interesting. 
it kind of speaks to one of the hurdles that existed. If you wind back the clock to 2017, um, maybe the liquidity wasn't there. The spreads were way wider before we had a true electronification of the market from a OTC perspective, at least. But there are other impediments still that you delineate in this report. One of them being um, regulation, one of them being custody. So maybe to an extent, the sort of trading um, liquidity volume problem has been solved, but you still have maybe some of these other infrastructure problems like custody or the lack of prime brokers. What are what are some of the top issues there? Sure. So on, on the custody front, it's been really interesting to see um, the evolution and the appetite um, from institutions to gain exposure to crypto purely as a function of kind of custody providers. Um, you know, in, in the early days, you know, when we wanted to, to gain exposure, we were limited to, to gaining exposure uh, through uh, GBTC, um, which kind of trades over the counter uh, as a trust. And the very nature of sort of crypto as it relates to traditional assets um, is is a lot different. And so for an institutional investor, it, there needs to be a very strong understanding of how this is just a completely different mechanism to to safeguard assets. And we've we've seen that kind of when you talk to an institutional investor and they want to gain exposure and they want to hold it on their balance sheets, uh, they're not really set up to kind of custody it themselves. And so they've had to sort of rely on your third party providers to do so. And that uh, is, is sometimes a hurdle, especially if you're, let's say, an SEC registered uh, investment advisor or kind of uh, you have assets uh, greater than 150 million under management, um, then you have to sort of uh, abide by sort of the qualified custodian rule. And uh, so what that means is you basically kind of have to have to onboard with a qualified custodian, which, you know, four or five years ago did not exist. And on behalf of sort of your clients at no stage in sort of your exposure to Bitcoin, can you fully self-manage or self-custody your keys? Um, and that's that's something that, you know, a lot of people don't don't really recognize where, you know, even if you were set up to self-manage your custody, you uh, under sort of the SEC custody rule, um, aren't allowed to manage it just because, you know, if you ha if you custody your own private keys, then theoretically you could just flee with those keys. And so there's been an entire sort of, um, you know, framework and taxonomy to handle this in, in sort of the stocks and, and bond market. Uh, and that is just something that that uh, is starting to mature in in uh, in the crypto markets. Um, so yeah. what are the what what are the reasons today in 2020 when you have uh, quite a number of, I guess what we would call qualified custodians, it's a it's a thorny description. Um, what what is a qualified custodian? It changes depending on, you know, who you're asking. It's like what's in a name, right? Mm -hmm. Why in 2020 with with all these qualified custodians is Ark still not able to buy Bitcoin directly? And is still investing through Grayscale. Yeah, sure. So uh, part of my uh, kind of job uh, or or work as an analyst um, and sort of heading sort of the product development as well uh, is, is figuring out more efficient ways to to kind of gain exposure to uh, Bitcoin and crypto more broadly. Um, and and so you know, to, to be quite frank, our 
up until very recently, our, our kind of exposure to uh, Bitcoin was limited to uh, GBTC, uh, but but that is changing, and we've you know been working on uh, ways to gain more efficient exposure by holding the underlying. Um, likely, you know, won't be a, anywhere close to a wrapper like we, we see with our ETFs, but that is something that you know Arc is and has been diligently working on. Mm-hmm. And so, what what have you been looking for specifically in that quest? Yep. Uh, so I, I, I'd say a few things. I, I, um, it, it's really kind of one, you know, the, the main premise for wanting to figure out ways to gain more efficient exposure starts with, you know, our, our existing kind of clients. And um, there are sort of structural uh, limitations and, and portfolio weight limits um, that, you know, underweight our exposure relative to our conviction when it comes to GBTC. Um, so, you know, the exercise really starts out with laying out the land of how investors kind of gain exposure to Bitcoin today. Um, you know, as I previously alluded to, the the most logical and uh, simplest way is really just buying and holding uh, Bitcoin directly. Obviously, that sounds simple, but, you know, to my earlier point, you need to account for it on your balance sheets and, and a need to self-custody crypto kind of presents additional liabilities that uh, a lot of institutional investors are not willing to take. You know, the alternative is sort of just buying a, a, a crypto index product or something like a GBTC. Um, you know, a Bitwise is, is another example of that, you know, where you're going to have, you know, maybe market cap weighted quarterly rebalanced portfolios or sort of passive exposure to a single or a few assets. Um, you know, there you know, be, is, that, that's a, that's a, that's another option, but also sort of presents, you know, additional limitations, uh, from a, a fee structure standpoint, um, and from sort of the active management component that we actually think is very vital, um, in the crypto space, especially kind of given the volatile and, and liquid nature of, of the asset. And so on the other end of the spectrum, you have kind of, um, the ability to participate in a more traditional kind of crypto fund. And that's, you know, broken down into sort of that venture capital-like structure where, you know, you're going to have um, kind of vesting schedules on on different crypto assets. Uh, you're not really going to be actively managing it. You're going to be placing bets that, you know, hopefully you'll be able to liquidate three, five, 10 years down the line. And then on the other end, you have kind of that kind of high frequency hedge fund quant-driven exposure um, where, you know, you'll, you'll perhaps gain exposure to just a few assets and really just uh, leverage kind of, kind of the volatility and, and make that your friend. And so with that as the lay of the land, you know, I think where, where our stands is, is somewhere in between sort of that, that hedge fund, uh, venture capital-like fund uh, structure. Um, you know, for the purpose of this conversation, unfortunately, I, I can't, you know, uh, reveal too much. But, uh, you know, we really take kind of a venture capital-like uh, approach to our investment horizons. You know, we think that this is actually a winner-take-most, if not all, game. But at the same time, we understand sort of the nature of this asset and the in the need and the ability to actively manage around it, uh, especially in times of volatility. Uh, and so um, that that's kind of where we're trying to position ourselves um, in in upping that exposure. And of course, uh, you know, using kind of the underlying spot as the instrument in which we can gain exposure. So, you know, not futures um, and, and not sort of derivatives um, like what we've seen other uh, asset managers gain exposure through. 
I think it's it's interesting. This kind of really speaks to the nascent nature of this of this market at this moment, where you have a firm like Arc, which is so much so at the bleeding edge of of the investment landscape, still only comfortable uh, investing in in this space through uh, the vehicle of Grayscale, um, especially without a proper index product that that freely trades. I feel like that's something that could serve as a major catalyst towards driving up price by bringing on more investors. I'd be curious to know the, the degree to which you share that view and and maybe what some other short-term to medium-term catalyst could be in driving growth and and then in doing so driving price, which is what you know most people are, are thinking about. But uh, maybe it's those types of of access products, and, and maybe it's some of the other stuff you talk about in the report, like growing adoption in in emerging markets. Sure, yeah, I mean it's a, it's a great question. I think that obviously it starts with uh, with education. I mean, we speak to investors on a on a daily basis who um, really you know ha- have trouble kind of understanding the very basics of of this asset, um, and you know you sit down with them for you know, 30, 45 minutes, uh, and they start to open up, but, you know, still very far from kind of making um, any decisions. I think it'll be a a combination of uh, kind of investors being much more open to, you know, sitting down and really trying to understand this. And if they're going to make a no, it it should be a dismissive no, combined with sort of the social validation that we're getting from, you know, more sort of bleeding edge uh, investors and, and, and whether that's a, a Paul Tudor Jones or a David Swenson from Yale, um, all those are, are sort of, um, you know, trailblazing for others to, to follow suit. Uh, so we tend to really see um, a peak in, in interest in, in learning about this right after kind of a major, you know, asset manager, uh, you know, decides or announces that they're uh, gaining exposure. Um, in terms of the specific products, uh, I, I, I do agree with you that the the, the efficiency in, in which you can gain exposure through different vehicles um, remains limited. And I would say that likely today for institutional investors, the best way to gain exposure is through a private fund vehicle. And uh, that for, for many still you know poses you know limitations. One, because you, you have to be accredited or you have to be a qualified purchaser. And two, it, it requires kind of a, a completely sort of different set of expertise or operations to, to make that kind of to commit to that. So you have a lot of financial advisors, for example, who you know, might be holding Bitcoin in their own portfolio, uh, but still can't recommend it to their clients. And that's because there is no sort of 40 act fund that has uh, exposure to that, that, that is uh, kind of a, a, a wrapper for Bitcoin. Um, so something like an ETF would obviously uh, change that, but you'll you'll see kind of a lot of people not making that jump until let's say there is an ETF. Um, so yeah, it, it's there's a, there's a I would say a mismatch between the ultimate opportunity from a kind of a price and appreciation standpoint and the mechanism by which you can gain that exposure. To many, and in, in the, the, it's it's almost like this fallacy uh, that you actually want to figure out ways to gain exposure now, despite sort of the hurdles, whether that be regulatory or product, because if everything was figured out, uh, then it would likely just be this boring, uncorrelated, low volatile asset. 
so the the uncertainty is actually to your advantage if you if you uh, know how to leverage it. And what about the potential from the emerging markets? How does that fit into this? Uh, so the potential for emerging markets is part of one of the four kind of opportunities that we've uh, kind of sized. You know, we've seen a, a kind of a very interesting uptick in, in, in relative, I wouldn't say absolute, but relative demand uh, for Bitcoin in emerging markets. Uh, the way that we've sort of laid that out is, is really as a catalyst for currency demonetization, um, where, um, you know, during a spike in inflation, uh, you have kind of a, a complete loss of confidence in monetary authorities. And that loss of confidence basically encourages investors to uh, look for alternatives, um, whether that be in cash, bonds, or physical gold, and now Bitcoin. The unique thing about Bitcoin is that it sort of lives on the internet. It isn't really subject to, to capital controls, and it's a lot more sort of efficient to transport um, than you know, you know, physical gold. And so, you know, Bitcoin could act as really this catalyst and become a, a very important savings vehicle in emerging markets. And we might see sort of this grassroots movement uh, where, you know, businesses and consumers would sort of, would, would exclusively kind of demand alternatives to their currency, you know, purely as a function of, uh, of trying to retain a, as much purchasing power as they can. What, what's interesting here as well is like there are some parallels and, and Nick Carter has done a lot of work on this on quarter, sort of the, the dollarization phenomena. Um, so I mentioned Bitcoin, but it may in the medium term not end up you know, being Bitcoin. I mean, we've seen a, a massive uh, spike and uh, growth in sort of stablecoin volumes. Uh, at the end of the day, if you were to ask someone in, in an emerging market uh, whether they'd prefer sort of the dollar or Bitcoin, you know, nine out of 10 times, they, they're going to say the dollar. Um, the issue is that, again, there are sort of very strict capital controls um, on the dollar, uh, and the on-ramps are, are, are quite limited. So if you were to sort of uh, size that entire opportunity and, and start to kind of see kind of this, uh, this bottom-up movement to uh, move away from kind of a, a currency, a local currency that has the potential to experience hyperinflation, um, this could be a, a multi-trillion dollar opportunity. So the way that we've sized it is Let's say Bitcoin were, were to capture 5% of the global M2 monetary base outside of the four largest currencies. So not even accounting for the US dollar, the yen, the yuan, the euro. And with sort of similar uh, velocity uh, to kind of M2 money, the market cap could increase by, by a trillion dollars. Um, so just, just that use case alone. Um, you know, we, we could see a trillion dollar uh, market cap for Bitcoin. And complementing that, if it is able to capture this, this sort of function as a global settlement network, you're, you're estimating if it captures 10% of that market, you could see a sevenfold increase from 200 billion to 1.5 trillion in value. For those two numbers, 5% on the monetary side and then 10% on the settlement side, how did you uh, derive those two figures? Sure. So in in the grass, we kind of uh, provided sort of different um, scenarios uh, based on kind of just the conservative versus more aggressive estimates. I think really the, the proxy there um, is, is, uh, is, is kind of how we just size the opportunity more broadly um, when it comes to this kind of 
technology seeping um, into kind of the everyday uh, individual. Um, so, you know, you take, for instance, kind of internet penetration, um, you know, you take uh, kind of what the, the global scale or adoption uh, is of, of mobile phones, kind of the online banking. And, and I, I would say that this is sort of a, a relatively um, conservative estimate, uh, given w- what we've seen sort of the growth uh, play out um, kind of with sort of Internet enabled uh, companies more broadly. Um, you know, so, so for instance, you, you, if you, let's say, track since uh, 2007 or 2008, what the penetration of sort of social media platforms are on uh, individual mobile phones, you know, that's, uh, you know, uh, upwards of 30, 40 percent. Um, and so if you say that gaining exposure to Bitcoin is, is going to end up being as simple as sort of downloading the cash app on your phone, and uh, and then being able to have everything kind of facilitated through kind of a square merchant, that's I, I would say a, a pretty conservative estimate on on those numbers. And and we try to be kind of more conservative in our, in our estimates. So you know, eliminating let's say the top four currencies uh, outside of M two is like okay, you know, Bitcoin. Let, let's let's even just dismiss the fact that Bitcoin, um, you know, won't replace kind of the dollar or the yen or the euro. Um, which many think that it has the the potential to do. Um, what what does that look like? So um, I, I would say that uh, again, our approach here is is more conservative than it is um, kind of methodical or systematic. You mentioned Cash App. There's also the potentiality that PayPal very soon will be adding buy and sell capabilities for for Bitcoin and and other cryptocurrencies. That could that kind of speaks to uh, this underlying thesis that you have. Absolutely. I think that, you know, Square's definitely um, kind of laid out the land and and, uh, and applied a lot of pressure to kind of traditional payment and payment processor companies. Um, you know, PayPal's decision uh, potentially, you know, as we've heard through the grapevine, to offer sort of crypto uh, buying and selling services um, it is going to be a, a big move. Um, you know, I think that one of the the interesting things about these sort of new fintech companies is that the the on ramps uh, are are really already in place, right? Um, a lot of call it Cash App users, um, you know, are going to you know download Cash App for the first time because they need to you know tip a waiter or send a portion of their bill uh, to a friend, and you know once they've downloaded it, they're they're there, and the cost to you know discover that you can buy and sell Bitcoin directly through that same app. Is very low, uh, and 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 so it's gonna it's gonna be a big deal once once people start to recognize that. And we shall see how it all plays out. Yasine Almandra, an analyst at Arc, thank you so much for coming on to talk about your bull case for Bitcoin to an extent, and um, we appreciate you shedding light on some of these unique elements of of Bitcoin that obviously resonate with us here at the block and and i hope it resonates as well with our listeners when we get to that one trillion market cap we'll have you back on around you know 2021 mid next year maybe and and we can we can pontificate further i hope so thank you so much for having me